For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that you, O Lord, belong steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Jody. When I was in uh, second grade, <clears throat> I took special delight in slaying math pop quizzes. Um, especially if I was the first one done, I could feel like a boss. I'm not sure who I felt like I was impressing, but I felt really impressive when I could slap it down on the desk when I was done to make sure everybody else knew that I was done before them. Um, on the other hand, doing badly on one of those quizzes was a horrible feeling. And so I took special interest when my friend Dean told me he knew how I could guarantee that I'd never have to feel terrible after a math quiz again. He told me that all the second grade teachers, and his mom was one of them, so he would know, at least I thought, um, that they had this giant math book that contained all the answer keys to the quizzes. And then he pointed out that book on our teacher's shelf. He said, it's right there. And it wasn't long after that that uh, I had the opportunity to explore said book uh, and grab hold of this salvation from bad quiz grades. Uh, I had gotten sick at school one day, and uh, when I came back to my class from the nurse's office to get my backpack before going home, my class happened to be at recess. So it was just me in the dark, empty classroom with the teacher's answer book just staring at me from the shelf. And so I went for it. I grabbed it, even though I was sick, and began rifling through it. Now, I don't, I don't even know what I was looking for at that point, right? Um, I think I was caught up in the excitement of the moment. And I think, I think I was hoping to see a page that would just say quiz answers across the top of it, but uh, I didn't find that. And just as I was coming to the realization that maybe Dean made this whole thing up, I was exposed the neighboring teacher walked into the room and caught me red-handed. And apparently, I was pretty good at lying because somehow I explained away my actions and got away with this malfeasance. But what was it that made me think any of that was a good idea in the first place? I mean, in my head, there was this hell that I was running from, bad quiz grades, and I was shown a tangible, immediate way of delivering myself from it. 
And I went for it. I wanted to manufacture my own salvation by my own power. And that, that desire, it's something I've, I've yet to outgrow. I'm not sure that any of us really do. It's, it's a human condition that just kind of morphs and changes with our age. And so as we get older, the things that we want salvation from just shift with the stage of life that we're in. And so bad math grades don't matter anymore, but what about the thousand other torments from which we want deliverance? People that make life difficult for us. Poverty, joblessness, difficulty in marriage. Unruly kids, disease, emotional suffering, injustice, death. And because we don't like to feel out of control, and we don't like depending on an invisible God for solutions to visible problems, I think we make it a habit to try and deliver ourselves from these things by manufacturing our own types of salvation. We build our hope on worldly deliverances that they might grant temporary relief, but ultimately they prove lacking and they leave us exposed and worse off before, than before. So we're going to consider what God has written in Psalm 62 about this inward longing that we feel to write our own conclusions to the unfinished and often painful stories of life, but hopefully what we'll learn today together is to wait, just to wait. I don't mean waiting as passive disengagement. I mean waiting as the active rejection of accessible saviors so that we can embrace God's absolute salvation. The active rejection of accessible saviors so that we can embrace God's absolute salvation. So let's think about King David here for a moment. Um, in Psalm 62, David is faced with this temptation that we're talking about to manufacture his own salvation. Um, we don't really have a good pulse on the exact situation he's facing. Um, some people think that this was written during the time when his own son, Absalom, was trying to usurp the throne. Uh, maybe, maybe not. David was pursued violently by a number of people. Actually, it could have been any of those. Um, but regardless, we know he's experiencing this opposition to the point that his life and his kingship are at stake. They're being threatened. He, he says in, in verses 3 through 4, if you look, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? And David, David is the man in this passage. Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence, they only plan to thrust him, David, down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They Blessed with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So real people are coming after David. And they're doing real violence. They're attacking and they're battering, right? And though David has proven himself in battle before, I mean, he's, he's fought many wars. He's defeated famous warriors and things like that. It doesn't seem like this is a season of life in which David feels much like a conqueror. He compares himself to a wall or a fence that's about to be toppled over. His pursuers actually look a lot stronger than he does at the moment. And they're, and they're not respectable people that have honest disagreements with him. They're dishonest, power-hungry animals 
who sees opportunities to kick a man while he's down. Now think for a minute. If you're facing similar circumstances, and you're, you're a king like David, with a history of God's favor backing you and uh, a group of world-class assassins called the Mighty Men protecting you, what are you going to be tempted to do in this situation? I would think wipe out the threat, right? Send your assassins, David, to take care of the problem. What are you waiting on? Or maybe, maybe you don't use your military resources. Maybe you lean on your wealth, right? Get some gold out of the royal treasury. Pay off your attackers just to leave you alone. Or since you know that they're after positions of power, maybe you give them positions of importance within the royal court and placate them. Make them your friends. I mean, he's got all the tangible resources he could possibly need to achieve a quick deliverance from his torment. And his temptation, I think, is a man who feels weak and scared, like a fence about to be knocked over, is to trust in the salvation that's being offered by those things as sort of God replacements. And it comes out in the things he's writing. I think it comes out in the way that David is having to plead with himself, earnestly to wait on God, right? Read with me in verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Oh, my soul. You don't don't have to do self-talk like that. You don't have to recite your beliefs like that over and over unless you feel the temptation to act or believe in a way that's contrary. This is why David has to keep using the word alone or only over and over again as he pleads with himself. I mean, why would he need to be so purposefully exclusive like that, God alone, as he reminds himself of what he should trust in? Maybe because he sees all too clearly that there are a hundred different things within his reach that posture themselves as really capable saviors. And they're all calling out to him with their alluring siren songs, right? Trust in me, David. Promising a quick deliverance from his stress. So he's pleading with himself, oh my soul, there's only one place you can look. There's only one place. Another way you see these things come out in in Psalm 62 is that he he begins calling out these accessible saviors by name. He's identifying them. They're They're not imaginary. Uh, Specifically, he mentions the dynamic duo of status and wealth. Um, I think most of us probably see life through the lens of the pre-iceberg Titanic passengers, right? Status matters. Your estate matters. The, The echelon of society that you find yourself in, that can actually make things happen for you in life. But in verse 9, David says, look, both men of high estate and men of low estate They're a delusion. They're a breath. They're both fading away. He shares the same view as the the post 
iceberg Titanic passengers. Like, what, what does your status matter if the ship is going down and we're all on it? And then regarding wealth, in verse 10, he says, no matter how you get your riches, they're also not something you can trust in. And you can use unethical means to get them, like extortion or robbery, or riches could just increase, he says, through normal means. But the warning is the same in both instances. Set not your heart on them. You know, as, uh, as someone whose job is more or less tied to the, uh, the real estate industry, I'm reminded of 2008. Um, in 2008, the, the U.S. housing market was seen as maybe the most stable of the markets. It was a, a safe bet for banks and funds to invest in mortgage-backed securities. So what you had was this slew of uh, retirement funds that had invested in them because they had predictable, uh, faithful returns, right? But what they didn't know was that those securities were destined for failure due to blatant misrepresentation about the quality of the mortgages that were contained in them. And so when all those mortgages began defaulting, the fallout was that you had elderly people who were well into retirement being notified that the fund upon which they pinned their retirement dreams, the, the rock upon which they thought they stood, was just gone in an instant. You know, even though he lived thousands of years before mortgage-backed securities were a thing, David knew Things like this happen. Set not your heart on them. He's, he's doing his level best in this psalm to resist the temptation to take the bait and trust in these pseudo-saviors. So he's pleading with himself and he's calling out these phonies. And, and we, we can identify with this. I mean, we're not kings like David, right? We don't have his resources, more than likely, there are not people who want us dead so they can take our position of power. But that doesn't mean there aren't threatening things from which we want deliverance. And that doesn't mean that we're not tempted to manufacture our own salvation from those threats. In fact, most of the time, these threats and, and these accessible saviors, they are dressed in really common everyday attire. They, they don't show up in dramatic fashion and uh, announce their presence and their intentions in your life. For instance, what about just the simple, consistent threat of just living life in a broken world, post-Eden, where your work produces thorns and thistles, Nothing seems to work the way it should. and Little injustices every day, like a thousand paper cuts, just continually cut you down over time. And fickle human beings, which we all are, betray your trust in ways that are, that are big and small. I mean, what, what do you do with that regular pattern of crushed optimism that comes along with living in this age? What kind of deliverance do you reach for? You know, up until a couple years ago, the, the salvation from, from that rhythm of pain that I like to manufacture for myself was cynicism. And cynicism is a quick and convenient way to deliver yourself from feeling crushed over and over again. 
Paul Miller, he's uh, been really helpful for me in this regard in his book, uh, A Praying Life. He says this, he says, with the good shepherd no longer leading us through the valley of the shadow of death, right? We've forsaken following the good shepherd for other things. With him no longer leading us through the valley of the shadow of death, we need something to maintain our sanity. Cynicism's ironic stance is a weak attempt to maintain a lighthearted equilibrium in a world gone mad. My reach for cynicism is a reach for a quick savior from the ills of our age. Because if you, if you always predict and expect the worst, and if behind every silver lining you so perceptively see a cloud, and you're suspicious of everyone's motives, you can't really get let down anymore, can you? You're already there. And you get to look like a prophet. See? Told you it was going to happen, right? The other shoe was bound to drop at some point. I called it. You guys are a bunch of suckers. You get to feel good about that. But really, all you are is Linus Van Pelt from the Peanuts cartoon, right? Cynicism is your security blanket, and you're carrying it around everywhere you go. It's your broken attempt at controlling at least something in a world that's gone mad. You're in the valley of the shadow of death, and cynicism is your shepherd. We disguise it as being real or discerning. But it backfires, doesn't it? Miller continues, he says, but this cynicism leaves us doubting, unable to dream. It shuts down our hearts, and we just show up for life going through the motions. So what delivers me from pain in the moment ends up robbing me of life altogether. Here's another example of this temptation in everyday attire. I got permission to share this. Uh, my wife, Bethan, was recently having uh, one of those downward spiral kind of days um, where her failures were all she could see. You ever have those? I have those. Um, and when I came home from work that day, she explained how in the midst of feeling all of this failure, she wanted to do something that would remind her that there's something she's not failing at. So she donned her apron, and she made some donuts, <laughs> because baking is her love language. But things did not go well. She said, just look at them. And I looked on the table, and there's this plate of, of homemade cake donuts that were kind of squashed looking and looked like they were having trouble not dissolving into one another as they sat there. And she said, even my baking is a failure. She'd reach for an accessible savior that normally makes her feel a little bit better about herself, but she was exposed. She got burned in this instance. I mean, our days are filled with little inconsiderable moments like this when, when we have opportunities to build our hope on God's absolute salvation or on these accessible saviors. But in addition to these inconsiderable moments, Sometimes the threat from which we want deliverance is more severe. And sometimes we're confronted by extreme or, or dire circumstances, just like David's, right? Your livelihood, your reputation, maybe your life are on the line. And if your normal rhythm is to reach for accessible saviors during the inconsiderable moments of life, 
How do you think you're going to react when the dire moments come along? Graham Staines uh, and his family were Australian missionaries in, uh, in northern Odisha, India for a couple decades. Um, he and his family medically cared for and shared the gospel with impoverished victims of, of leprosy, actually, who lived in some of the, uh, the remote tribal areas of that region. But despite their loving care for these people, not everyone wanted them there. Um, there was a group of Hindu nationalists that were not thrilled at all with the type of gospel impact that this family was having. So in 1999, a mob of 50 of these people confronted Graham and his two sons as they slept inside their car, and they ended their lives in brutal fashion. I'll I'll let you read the details on your own. But think about this. I mean, they weren't ignorant of the dangers of the area in which they live, right? And if your normal rhythm of life is to reach for whatever provides quick and convenient deliverance, how would you be tempted to save yourself in a context where people want you dead? Do you deny Christ to save your skin? Do you stop sharing the gospel altogether so you don't arouse any trouble? Do you change the gospel to make it palatable? I think we're tempted by that. I mean, maybe you're more courageous than I am, but those would seem like really highly tempting temporary salvations to reach for. So, so what, what do we do with all these threats and these temptations? Well, regardless of the, the hell that's at hand, David says that the thing to do, the action that we should take, is actually to wait. To wait. And I want that word, wait, to just settle on us a little bit. I mean, this, this scarcely registers as an option in my mind. Wait. In, in this age, and I'm, I'm not bashing our generation or anything. It's just the reality of our times that in this age, we're trained not to wait for anything. That's the rhythm of our culture. Everything's got an overnight shipping option. Uh, We we communicate with each other in sound bites that have a limit of 280 characters. We're okay with inaccurate news as long as it's quick news. We need it now. Video streaming allows us to not wait on commercials anymore. I tried to watch cable with Beth and we were in Dallas a while back, and it was excruciating. I couldn't, I couldn't wait through the commercials. The language of waiting is becoming less and less part of our vernacular. But what if there's something that we need? Salvation. And it will only come to us on someone else's terms where we don't get to dictate the timeline or delivery method. That's what David's saying here. Salvation comes from God alone. And it's not arriving on our preferred schedule. And this is where waiting must be something that we get familiar with, even if it means that we're going to feel a little bit like an addict looking for their next fix. Right? Waiting for most of us, it means our skin is going to crawl. And our insides are going to burn because we have the itch for on-demand deliverance. 
But this call is a summons to actively, thoughtfully push against the flow of what we're used to. This is not a passive, disengaged kind of waiting. This is us, weak and scared as we are, by the power of the Spirit, taking hold of the truth that there's a deliverance we need that we cannot manufacture. And it's okay, right? It's okay. It's necessary for our souls to slow down in the midst of pain and say, okay, I I know I'm looking for deliverance, but I want to look in the right spot. So the wait is on. And this type of waiting, it consists of at least a few things that we see in this psalm, probably a lot more. Um, And these are overlapping ideas here, not necessarily things that happen sequentially, okay? So don't think think about these things in terms of, you know, four steps to follow to waiting. It's just all kind of happening at the same time. The first thing is we're pouring our hearts out to God. I'm taking that right from verse 8. We're pouring our hearts out to God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Don't think that waiting on God means that you're going to get to float above the fray, just kind of emotionless and and undisturbed by life. You're guaranteed to be brought to your knees by your need for deliverance. It's a guarantee. And that's okay. Part of, of waiting on God's salvation, part of trusting in Him is going to require the real you to interact with the real God. God's not an abstract of principles that enables you to flawlessly deal with life if you'll just follow them correctly. He's a person. He's a being who has designed you to relate to him in all things. So David says, while we wait on God's salvation, we come to him as our refuge We hide in him, and in the safety of his presence, we pour out our hearts. We tell him what hurts, right? He's our father, just like you would your father. You tell him what hurts. You tell him how the evils that befall us are affecting us. We tell him what we need, and we plead with him for those things. Even if sometimes we're wrong on what we think we need, he knows what's best, right? You're just pouring your heart out. You've heard the expression, ugly crying? Waiting on God requires ugly praying. It does not sound good. Stop trying to have the right words. It's not going to sound good. Waiting finds its expression through heartfelt prayer. Second, we're using wisdom. We're using wisdom. Uh, Waiting on God's salvation doesn't mean you're you're not going to have to make timely, practical decisions in your navigation of the threats. I mean, David still had to perform his duties as king. He didn't get to put everything on hold. Still had to inform his, his assistants, his, his military leaders, his advisors, how to handle the threats against the kingdom. If you lose your job and, and the hell of poverty is bearing down upon you, waiting does not mean that you get to sit in stillness and silence and wait for God to fill out job applications on your behalf to save you from poverty. It's not what it means. It's not wise. 
I mean, if you notice an injustice against someone, you see someone in danger, waiting on God doesn't mean you can't wisely step in to help. What if, what if William Wilberforce had thought that waiting on God's salvation with a still and quiet soul meant that he should just disengage from fighting against British slave trade? Just go, just go take a nap, William while an entire race is butchered. That's that's not wisdom. The fact that God provides ultimate salvation, instead of paralyzing you, should actually animate you with wisdom as you navigate the hard things. For Wilberforce, knowing that power and salvation belong to God alone enabled him to patiently fight against the evils of slavery for 20 years until it's abolition. So we pour our hearts out and we use humble wisdom to navigate the hells that are at hand in the present. Third, we're we're rejecting the promises of accessible saviors. We're rejecting them. It's, It's one thing to identify the false saviors that you turn to on a regular basis. Man, that is a that is a great first step. Identify them. But prying their promises out of your tightly clenched fists after you've been holding on to them for years, that is another thing altogether. And the reason that's hard is these accessible saviors, they do provide some kind of quick relief and it feels good for the moment. Instant relief. Oh, maybe even for a good while. And not having that quick relief hurts. It does, right? Especially if the alternative, waiting on God's salvation, does not provide resolution to your pain in this age. Sometimes it does. God delivered David from his earthly immediate enemies many times. But what if you're Graham Staines? What if you're his surviving wife and daughter who stayed to minister amongst the very people who murdered their husband and father and brothers and sons, knowing the same people could come for them too. Even though it hurts, rejecting those lesser salvations is a necessary part of following Jesus. And most of the time what that means is a daily moment-by-moment refusal to just build your life on the accessible saviors that promise to deliver you quickly from all your personal hells, right? We've got to plainly look at things. I've got to plainly look at things like cynicism and say, you're not the good shepherd I want to follow. The salvation you offer is not good enough. I want a better salvation. Can I say from from what the scriptures promise, And from personal experience, Jesus will provide the grace that you need to reject those other saviors. He is not disconnectedly watching you struggle. Please don't think that. Just waiting for you to to be victorious in your rejection of these other saviors. He is intimately involved. He's not withholding. He's not withholding his power and his love and his presence. He will patiently walk with you as you limp through these attempts to reject other saviors. 
And then lastly, if we are, in a negative sense, rejecting those other salvations, those lesser salvations, then positively we are hoping in God's salvation alone. We're hoping in his salvation alone. In uh, verses 11 and 12, David says that ultimately both power and steadfast love belong only to God. And I love that. Because that's ultimately what we're looking for when we're in need of salvation, isn't it? I mean, we want to know where we're going to find the love that has taken notice of our plight. Who's seen the threat against me and who's going to step in to help? And we want to know where we can find the power that can overcome it, right? Taking notice of our plight isn't good enough either. We need power and love. And the false saviors of this world, they never have both, ever. Only in God do we see power and love coming together, meeting together, and resulting in our salvation. And we in this day and age, have seen God's power and love manifest itself in space and time so much more clearly than David ever saw it. Because we get to look to Christ, the man who waited perfectly on God's salvation on behalf of impatient people like us. Think about how Jesus embodied these things. We've we've seen it in the Gospel of John, haven't we? In the way that all these people wanted to prematurely make Jesus their king. What's his response to them over and over? My hour hasn't come yet. It's not come yet. He didn't consider it a waste of time to plod through his 30-some-odd years looking toward the hour that was ordained by his father. He was waiting. You see it when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, right? Rejecting these accessible saviors in quick glory in favor of his father's plan. Man shall not live by bread alone. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall worship the Lord your God only. Only him shall you serve. Be gone, Satan. You see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Jesus's He's following David's call to pour out his heart to the point of blood coming out through his pores. Father, remove this cup from me. Not my will. Your will be done. You see, when Jesus is arrested, Peter tries to create his own salvation by grabbing a sword and slicing off the ear of a soldier. Jesus has no need for that type of salvation. Peter... Put your sword back into its place. Do you not think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, I'm waiting on purpose, Peter. You see, when the Jews are questioning him at a sham trial, he says barely a few words. His soul is silent and still. He's got no itching need to defend himself. No weak and shameful attempts to to manipulate and politic his way around the situation with many words. 
You see it when he's hanging on the cross, people walking by and mocking him. Saved others, let him save himself. Right? I mean, how, how great would the look on their faces have been had he come down off the cross and dealt with them right there? Right? There would have been a sweet, sweet moment of justice. Sweet moment of justice, right? Because how great would our suffering be had he given in to that type of salvation instead of embracing death and absorbing wrath for us? He would have had momentary deliverance and we would have faced eternal wrath. But his weight was worth it. Because then came the resurrection. You know what the scriptures say about the resurrection? Ephesians 2.6. We too have been raised with Christ. That meeting of power and love has become ours. His salvation has become our salvation. And that is the salvation that we're really longing for. Isn't it? The, the, the quick fixes of these accessible saviors, they're just not good enough. The, the salvation that we want is God's absolute salvation in Christ, a salvation that is not confined to this age, right? one that is secure, whether you see resolution to the things that threaten you or not. They have no power over you. We can face the hells of this age because we have been saved from the hell of the age to come. So we pour out our hearts to God. We navigate the threats, the suffering, the pain using wisdom. We reject the promises of accessible saviors in the meantime and we put all of our hope in the absolute Salvation brought to us in the power and love of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, Um, I'm, I'm well aware uh, of being someone who gets up to preach about something that he's not very good at doing himself. I imagine that's all of us in here. We, we agree with the things in your word. We agree with Psalm 62. We say amen that, that our salvation is found in God alone that you're our refuge. We tell our souls, trust in God alone. But we also admit that, that we're just bad at this. And so we're so grateful for Jesus who waited perfectly on you, who saw your salvation as so much better than the other things that were offered him during his time on earth. I'm thankful that in him we have a great high priest who knows what it's like to be tempted in these ways and yet without sin. 
Help us trust in him, Lord. We need your help day in and day out. We pray that you would make these truths seep down deep into our bones. We pray that the rhythm of our lives would be constantly pushing away the accessible saviors and turning to you and putting all of our hope in the salvation that you have brought and will bring. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.